Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Brian, how are you, mate? Hey, it's Matt. Yeah, it is. Life good? I mean, you know, within reason. <laughs> one <laughs> one hell of a year, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I don't know. I mean, I have it pretty easy, but boy, is this a nightmare. I'm 34 and, you know, I like to think I've got a bit of life experience. You've obviously got a bit on me. Have you ever known anything quite like this? Like, you know, there's always been strife and hardship and corruption and social ills. These things aren't new things, but this thing we're in, it feels new to me. What about you in your more experienced throne that you're sat in, Brian? Like, what's going on from your side of the world? Where where are we? Well, right now we're in New Jersey. Uh, (laughs) I'm in New Jersey, and I've been thinking about this a lot because I have a lot of free time and I'm a kind of a Twitter junkie. And uh, I mean, what I think we're seeing, at least in the United States, um, we have sort of unmasked an agenda uh, uh, that was basically uh, anti-people. And then you couple that with this, uh, this 
global pandemic and the mismanagement and you've got, you know, it's just a, here it's just a perfect storm. I mean, I understand that all over the world that there are a lot of, uh, a, a lot of right-wing governments where there used to not be one. And I think we've all, you know, it, the pandemic obviously affects everybody, but there's just a unique case in the U.S. where we have this perfect storm of, of aggressive ignorance and, uh, a, a, you know, science denial. It's it's really uh, it's nothing I've ever seen before. I mean, I think it's pretty much unique, at least to the it's it's unique to us. I mean, the closest this has been is when I've had, you know, I was in the 91 earthquake in L.A. And the city was shut down for, you know, three or four days. I mean, with, the, you know, it's just not even a comparison. Yeah, we're looking at six months now. And obviously over there, you're on the cusp of I mean, would you say this is going to be the most significant vote? an election in, in certainly modern day U S history. Oh yeah. Yeah. Without question. This is, this is, uh, yeah. I mean, I would say in modern day history because I'm not really, uh, I'm not really, com- I'm not qualified as a, uh, constitutional and presidential scholar to think back to when James K Polk was elected in 18, <laughs> you know, 30. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there was, there, there were plenty of, uh, plenty of scandals then but uh, yeah no this is absolutely uh the most important election that any of us living will ever see and um you know i the the signals are showing that uh that decent people aren't having it anymore and it seems to be uh you know this this uh just wanton disregard for for facts and science and uh, coupled with with uh, this sort of, you know, racist old man uh, identity politics is, uh, I think people have had enough and I'm still, you know, still vigilant. I mean, the worst thing you can possibly do is say that, you know, we're going to take care of this because I don't really believe that for sure. But uh, I do have hope. It does seem hopeful here that the first step we can do to eradicate, you know, this think of all the things that are wrong but i mean you know let's let's at least get control of this pandemic first and there's a very good chance that we're going to be able to to finally do something appropriate for that as soon as we get this guy out of office i've got a couple of questions for you before we move on from politics and talk about more you know joyful subjects the first being if we had to backtrack to 2016 why do you think it was if you could summarize i know it's a very complicated and you know difficult area in history to try and condense but why do you think this guy that's currently in the hot seat why do you think he got in what do you think it was what elements were at play that allowed this man to walk into the white house and become the president of the united states because nobody would have seen this coming in say 2014 right not at all i don't believe so i think that the main problem is is that uh people didn't like hillary clinton to begin with and people were uh, resentful of dynastic politics, and uh, and then of course all the baggage that she would have as a woman. Uh, but the most important problem, I think, you know, she still won the popular vote, and I think the the loss in the electoral college, uh, as antiquated as that format is, is because the uh, Democrats didn't take Donald Trump seriously, and they didn't put any uh, the appropriate amount of effort into swing states that would have easily put Hillary Clinton over the top. Uh, I, I don't remember what state it is. It probably Wisconsin or some state. The difference was like 50,000 votes uh, was, was the difference between, you know, 
getting those delegates. Um, so, and and lastly, there's this, uh, there is a huge segment of the population who, you know, doesn't really understand politics or what it is or what it does or governance who are like, fuck it. Yeah, let's, let's, let's burn it down. Fuck it. <laughs> you know, get some, uh, try something new. Nothing's working. You know, these people who, who don't, who just really haven't grasped it, what it is that uh, the Constitution provides and that the, uh, you know, the presidency uh, oversees. So it's a, it was a mess. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, he managed to hoodwink blue collar Americans into thinking that he was one of them, that he was a man of the people. Right. And he was like, I'm one of you. I'm going to say it like it is. I'm going to shoot straight. And they were like, yeah, I'm with this guy. Fake news. I'm buying into it. I wouldn't characterize all blue-collar Americans that way. What he did is he hoodwinked the people who are stupid. Uh, however, there are you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, millions of blue-collar Americans who are just interested in something different. I mean, the you know the problems in America have you know the the blue-collar problems are are decades old. You know, the, there was income inequality and. Uh, you know, the healthcare, I mean, it's really, really hard to live here. And so I can certainly understand trying to do something out of the box. I don't really think that it was a tacit approval of this, you know, pussy grabbing ignoramus. I think that uh, it's a combination of all the elements is what I is, is how I see it. And what about with the election that's coming up? If you had to kind of, you know, speculate how that's going to pan out, have you been think? Obviously, I presume you've been thinking about that a lot, and your whole country has. What do you see happening? Do you see him well, getting I mean, ousted? Yeah, I do. I see. I see him being ousted, and I see him, uh, you know, in you know, basically his whole the whole program right now. The Republicans don't even have a platform. I mean, admittedly, so we're the first day of the Republican uh, the Republican convention, and all they all it is is Donald Trump's uh, stand up on, you know, a ra- ra- rally stand-up. Uh, so the thing is, is that it's about how big a wound this is going to leave. And the seems the main objective to these people, the, the Republican Party, and most importantly, the real Trumpists, is to, if you lose the election, you do everything you can do to deny that you've lost the election. And when you are actually ousted from the property, you have a tailor-made base that you can now try to expand on, you know, from, from outside government. I mean, it's just, it's all, it's just, it's just mind blowing, but I do see, uh, I just don't think that there are enough, uh, there are enough people to sustain this, this charade anymore. Well, that's got to be a good thing, right? There's hope for us yeah. all yet. What about yourself as a road dog, as somebody who I'm presuming adores being on the road, loves playing live yeah. shows, has built an entire life around that lifestyle? How have you found not being on tour for the last six months, and what have you been doing to keep busy and stay sane? Um, well, of course, I miss it terribly, and it, it's kind of, you know, it, it's how I define myself. I mean, I haven't – this is the first summer that I have not been on tour – in 25 years uh, consecutively. Fuck and hell. yeah, and it's not, you know, it's, it's every single aspect of the touring that I miss. Obviously, the performance and the interacting with 
fans and all of that adrenaline stuff. But then there's the fact that the people that I play with and the people that work with us are my best friends. And we spend, you know, six months of the year with each other. And I miss those guys and those women and just the whole, you know, the kind of pirate ship aspect of it and the, the flow of travel. I mean, I found myself a couple of months ago, I, I said out loud, I said, I would just like to have missed a flight and be stuck <laughs> in an airport overnight to make the next flight. That would be good enough now. I mean, that's how bad it's gotten. You know, just get me out of here. I hear you. Um, I hear you. Yeah. I mean, the only, if there's any positives, it's that um, I'm very, very fortunate. My wife and I uh, lived in Washington, D.C. for 40 years. Uh, and we moved to the Jersey shore about three years ago. So where I am living in quote quarantined unquote is a, is not an urban situation and there's plenty of space. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely easier, easier to manage from a safety point of view, but also psychologically. Um, so I have that. And also this being the first summer that I'm home, I have been trying to do things that, you know, one would do. I mean, I'm, I've tried my hand. At, I have, I have tomatoes and I have peppers growing, which is exciting. My first time gardening. Nice. And, uh, I am, uh, you know, I, I bought a lawnmower because God <laughs> knows I have, I have the time now and I'm saving, you know, the $50 a week that we, you know, we paid the, the man and his kid. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of, I mean, there, there, there are parts of it that, you know, I smile when I think of it. it. It is, there are things that are fun, but, you know, you not even, there's, there's nothing here that I would exchange uh, permanently for doing what it is that I am so fortunate to do and love so much. I hear you, mate. I hear you. I want to talk about Washington in a moment. You mentioned Washington there. Before we get to that, though, yeah. where do you stand and where does Bad Religion stand on live streaming gigs and socially distanced gigs and these experiments that are going on at the moment with people, I guess, desperate for income, so sort of trying their hand at new approaches, but also, I guess, trying to just adapt in these times. Have you spoken about that as a band and have you toyed around with the idea of doing anything like that? Or is that completely off the cards for a band like you? Because I know some bands are just adamant that they'll never go down that road. Others, I think the longer time goes on, are coming around to it more. Where's your personal viewpoint on that and, and the band as a group, as a collective? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question and also very timely because you kind of asked that question in the middle of that conversation. Right. Initially, uh, our, our, our feeling, and especially when this all went down, is that trying to recreate what we do, which is, you know, a highly interactive people gathering situation, um, trying to do that online is, is just not effective. And some of our friends had, had tried it, and it was something that just really wasn't for us. Um, we don't know if it will ever be for us, but I will say this, as time has progressed and as we are now looking at the real possibility that we're not going to be able to perform in 2021 either, yep. um, we are putting, uh, we, we are just looking at how we could actually do this in a way uh, that would be not just a camera looking at a bunch of old guys in a practice room, which trust me is not thrilling. Um, there's, there's a way to do something special and I'm not really concerned. It's not even about whether you charge for it or not. It's about 
um, doing it right. We have, well, yeah, but also we have, so we are very lucky and we have a lot of fans all over the world. And I think we need to touch base with them. I mean, performance wise or whatever, it's just a, uh, it's, it's important to keep the relationship up because we, you know, the, we're, it is back. It is, you know, symbiotic, the relationship between us and the people. And I am not against doing some kind of performance. Um, if it is going to be something that will make people happy and it's just about finding out what that is. So the short answer is, is that the doing a, a web performance once completely off the books is now something that is being discussed um, not rigorously, but you know, it's, it's being discussed on maybe bi-weekly. Someone chimes in on our, on our <laughs> bi-weekly zoom call and says, Hey, I, Kevin Lyman has this soundstage. And I was talking to Kevin, you know, that kind of thing. I saw Dropkick Murphys did a really good one and theirs was very specific and unique. They did it live from Fenway Park. And so they had, right. they had a day in the lead up to it where they're talking about the history of that club and that venue and their connection to it and it was really a celebration of boston obviously because they're very attached to that part of the world it made sense and it was just them on the pitch and it worked really well and it was basically like an arena show without a crowd but i think you have to tailor it to the to the band and their audience and their aesthetic because if you just you know as you say putting up a webcam in a practice room that's not really going to get anybody that excited but then it does come a time when you think well maybe that's better than nothing right because as you say you want to keep those fires stoked and you want to stay in connection and and communication with these fans that have been with you for so long how did your live book q a go the other night i watched that because ian winwood who um cure well hosted it is a good friend of mine so i tuned in out of curiosity and support and i thought that went really well obviously that's not music but i thought he he kind of handled and you know hosted the situation really professionally and it it came across really good did you guys have a good time doing that and did it good did it have a good response um well first of all first of all i am very proud that i am good friends with our mutual friend ian isn't he just great i mean the way he did that was so perfect he's a he's just He's a student of the band. He's a fan, and he's so goddamn smart. Uh, just great questions. He really, he really, and and what he did was make this, which was our first attempt at this at all, into something truly fun that people really enjoyed. The feedback has been phenomenal, and I will go so far as to say is that that particular event is what kind of sparked this idea about finding a way to do something like that with yeah. the band. I mean, he's. Um, I loved his book that he wrote, Smash, and I presume he would have spoken to a lot of you guys yeah. in the band for the process of, of creating that. And he was a guest on my show a while back. He's been a dear friend for a while. And he, as you say, he's just such a student of music and such an informed, smart guy and a true fan. And I'm really pleased that, you know, it went as well as it did. And, and you've it had did. such a great reaction to it. And obviously it's, you know, perhaps going to lead on to more things. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I think so too. And we've done a we've done a couple of other ones, uh, and uh, you know, not quite as efficiently as Ian's, but we try our best. We're we're left to our own devices, <laughs> uh, and we've uh, really the response has been phenomenal. And it's really there are people who are just like it is just so great to see your faces. It is so nice to you know to be able. I mean, it's a it's a form of communication, and um, it's just really it it's. It's making me nostalgic for 
you know, public interaction, even though it's, you know, I'm sitting in uh, my guest room that I call a library because it has a bookcase in it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sitting in front of my bookcase. You don't know that, you know, if the camera went like three inches, it would be like cat toys, boxes, (laughs) (laughs) old sweatshirts. I found it, uh, I found it a bit weird doing zoom because for me, zoom, if the connection isn't great, it can be a bit jolty. I found the sound a bit echoey as well. Obviously for something like your Q and A, it had to be visual, but for me with adapting to lockdown life with my podcast, I found doing phone is the best because although you don't get that quite intimate personal interaction that a face-to-face does or even an on-screen does what you can do because i'm old school in an audio way like this is just get lost in the conversation and i think that a phone conversation is really conducive for that because it's you know you're not worrying about reception or the speed of the feed or anything like that you can just hit the ground running and and have a good old chat a good old-fashioned conversation Agreed. And, uh, and I have been, you know, one thing I have done a lot of is interviews and talking to people via, you know, either just talking via Skype and FaceTime where they would use some of that, the images or Zoom just about all my various other stuff. And uh, I like the, the plain old phone call the best. I, I really that. do. And it, it's, uh, it, well, it's because this is how we used to do things. <laughs> and <it>. yeah. <laughs> you're, when I'm talking to you right now, I am, I am, I am not distracted by anything. I'm actually, I, it seems like I, it's a, you know, it's just much more present interaction. So I, I, I support your efforts. Love it, Brian. Well, listen, let's take a trip back in time, if that's okay with you. And I would love to get your firsthand account of what it was like growing up in Washington um, around the late 70s, early 80s. We'll get to the music scene in a moment, but more just from like yeah. a personal point of view, a political point of view, a social point of view. At that time, in that place, what was America and indeed Washington like through your eyes as a young man growing up there and then, if you could set the scene for us? I guess there are a lot of misconceptions about Washington. I mean, a lot of people don't even know you can live there. They think that it's, you know, part of Maryland and, or Virginia. Uh, but it is, in fact, a the District of Columbia is, you know, is uh, population when I was growing up was probably about half a million people. And I, my family were media people. So my father was a television news producer for the local CBS affiliate. And my mother worked for PBS. And this, this was really my world were people that my parents would come in contact through that. So we really were, I mean, I really was a, you know, a liberal left wing media brat, because this was our interactions. And the schools I went to, I went to school with kids of people, you know, kids who's parents were on air talent or they worked in public relations or the other side is that you worked for the government. And that was really kind of the, uh, the main game in town with my own experience. Uh, and so I really didn't get an accurate worldview at all. I had a, you know, I had this, uh, an incredible amount of information coming to me, even as a young boy. I mean, my, my father had three television sets, in the living room, like you'd see in an old movie, because his job is, you know, part of his job is to monitor what the other the other two networks were doing. And it's like, that's a, you know, that's going to skew your, your impression of things. Um, but I think it probably did in a good way, because I certainly am still uh, incredibly interested in the mechanics of society and of government um, and of actually, and of, you know, media. I mean, it's just, it's a, uh, it was an interesting, interesting way to grow up. But, uh, 
yeah, I was somewhat isolated, I think. I, I didn't really get a lot of world experience. Um, and D.C. is, uh, you know, it's uh, when I was growing up, the downtown, there really wasn't one. There was a pre, D.C. had really been uh, decimated by uh, the 68 riots. And a lot of the infrastructure of the main downtown uh, and closely surrounding areas was just non-functioning. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, kind of think about, you know, those old pictures of New York that you've seen from the seventies, uh, not quite on that level. There was not, there was not, not, well, you, nothing's buildings on weren't on fire and things like that. <laughs> they weren't actually on fire. No. And I'm, you know, but I'm just saying that there was a general desolation. Uh, and so you would think that living in this, in the nation's capital, that there would be, uh, you know, all of this excitement about being in this for america very old city with all this great architecture and all of this stuff going on but honestly when i was a kid the only time i would get anywhere near the actual like you know the middle of the city was when we have guests who would want to go see the washington monument or we would take friends to see the capitol which by the way in my you could just walk in you could just park your car in front of the capitol and walk into Edward Kennedy's office and ask his secretary if the senator's in. And I, I shit you not. I mean, wow. imagine that world, you wow. know? Uh, yeah, it was crazy. Um, but I digress. It's, uh, I lived in D.C. in northwest Washington, which is, you know, a uh, for being within the boundaries of Washington, D.C. proper, was, yeah, I would consider it suburban and... Uh, and all that that means. Was it um, a safe area to grow up? Did you feel safe as a kid walking around? Did you notice it was an affluent area or a bit of a poverty-stricken area, or a bit of both? What was the climate? And was it violent and was there crime? Well, I lived in what I would call a middle-class, upper-middle-class upper, upper middle class, uh, part of Washington, D.C., and where I've had no concept of, Feel I never felt unsafe, and I there was no crime around me, and there was no unrest, and it was uh, the problem is that, that this sort of this sense of security when punk rock started, and we started to go downtown, and you know I'm 15 years old and I'm walking around deserted downtown streets by porno theaters, uh, you know trying to find the punk rock club with absolutely no idea of exactly how dangerous any of this is. I mean, you know, if you wanted to, you know, D.C. was like any other major city in the 70s and the 80s. Is that, you know, the, the city centers uh, after dark were not great places to be. And they really, you know, it was uh, there wasn't a lot of business going on there that was legitimate. And I really never, uh, I never thought of D.C. as unsafe in any way. And, you know, I, I wasn't scared of black people because I went, I lived a place that was majority African-American. I didn't, you know, I had no, it was, it, God, it seems so idyllic now to be able to have this opportunity, but I, I really did. And it wasn't, uh, did not strike me as scary at all, but I'm quite sure it would be frightening if I had lived at the 930 Club, you know? The music scene that was going on there at that time, uh, obviously, you know, is the stuff of legend now, and I'm sure you get asked about it all the time, but it's pretty amazing that essentially, for all intents and purposes, your high school band just so turned out to be one of the most influential punk bands ever. And assumedly, at the time, you're not aware 
that what you're making is is special and iconic or are you aware as a young kid even then that what you're doing is important and it's gonna you know live on for forever was there any sense well, of that when you were making music with Ian and the guys a minor threat um my my ability to recognize the significance of minor threat came long after the band broke up uh when we were doing it there was we had absolutely no idea that there would be of any significance to anybody. We were playing for the love of doing it. And we were playing shows for our friends who dressed funny like us and who liked the sex pistols, just like us and like black flag and circle jerks. And we were just kind of, you know, we were in this very small DIY punk scene and it was really, um, it was just the practicing of it. You know, it was, it was the doing that was important. There was no, it was never any legacy intended and um it really only happened it really minor threat really only fell into place in the pantheon of of important american punk music uh, many many years after we broke up so i think maybe that's something there might be a reason why it's minor threat is is generally pretty much all good is because we didn't know it mm, and yeah. we weren't trying we, we, we there was absolutely never an attempt to try to do something it was all an honest outpouring um you know from, from the ethics of it you know the music uh ian's lyrics it all just was uh genuine no bullshit and um and i'm very 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 glad it it wound up being this way i think it's great and i'm very proud of it as you should be man as you should be how about the creative songwriting side of it was that split equally was that more ian's thing how did the songs come about in, in minor threat ian most of the songs ian would have written the music and the words. I would say maybe 20% of the songs, the music would be uh, Lyle or myself, but the nature of all of it was collaborative. So even if Ian brought in a complete song, uh, there were times when Jeff would have a problem with, with, with lyrics or suggest something else. And then Jeff's, you know, it, that, that would just, we just switch that out or just, uh, Again, nothing was precious. So Ian wasn't coming in with like, these are my songs. I'm a year older than you. Please perform them accurately, children. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like that. I mean, it was, everyone was just trying to make things better. But um, he, uh, he did the absolute lion's share and majority of all of that work. And the reason why is because he's a fucking genius. That's why. I mean, <laughs> say what you want. That man is just special. It's a pretty solid guy to find yourself in a group with at the age of 15 when you're just starting out in bands, isn't it? Like, talk about right time, right place, right people. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, I was, well, very lucky. I mean, that's, that's, that's the history of my semi-successful music career is right place, right time, and hook on to someone who's smarter than you are. <laughs> I mean... And a little bit of talent goes a long way, Brian. Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> well, Matt, it is punk rock after all. Come yeah. On. <laughs> <laughs> who was the first was there a first band that was like the catalyst for the whole local scene was it minor threat was it bad brains like was there one group that was just in there first and then everything else kind of immediately followed or was it all happening at exactly the same time well i was i got in there i was only I, i'm sorry i i went punk quote unquote <laughs> in uh in you made the uh, transformation I began to transform uh, in the spring summer of 1980, and there had been a 
punk scene in Washington for many years before that. But I think if you want to distill it all down, I would say that uh, the Bad Brains uh, had the biggest influence on the type of, of on the Washington D.C. punk and hardcore scene. Um, and they started, you know, a couple of years before us. And uh, they are, I mean, it does not get better than the Bad Brains. The Bad Brains at their high point are untouchable um, and have influenced uh, many more people than Minor Threat has. So it's good that they were first. I spoke to my good friend Jesse Mallon about the importance of Bad Brains, and he is such a student of music and has seen so many shows over the years, and he still says like those early Bad Brains shows stand out as the greatest gigs he's still ever seen to this day. I would have absolutely adored to have caught some of those shows. Did you play together often, and were a lot of these shows in the local area with just you know local stacked bands? Did you show up and do gigs together a lot, or was there not that much cross-pollination going on? Did it tend to just be each individual band had their own shows and the sort of crowds formulated around them? Well, we didn't play with the Bad Brains a lot because they had moved to New York by the time right. that we were really rolling. Uh, the first performance of Minor Threat, however, was opening for the Bad Brains in somebody, in the living room of a group house uh, <laughs> in Northwest D.C. And uh, It doesn't get much more punk than that, does it? Yeah. I mean, it was sort of a, like a, a word of mouth uh, uh, event. And that was the very first time that we performed in public. Um was at that at that house party and uh you know you just think about that now the first time i played a show i had to go up i'm 15 and i'm actually five feet tall and i have to go up to daryl jennifer and ask if i can use his equipment because of course i'm i'm a child i don't have any equipment i don't know how to be a musician and it's just this you know and the best thing of all is that we do this whole thing and there couldn't have been more than 30 people there i mean it's the living room of a row house of a you know I would, what would you call it? A terraced house or, you know, yes, I mean, exactly that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's like, how big can it possibly be? And it was, uh, you know, that, that's, that's DC in a nutshell. Just, <laughs> I love it. There we go. Yeah. You look at a lot of these iconic punk bands that have really, you know, kind of over time become even more immortalized and mythologized. And a lot of them are the bands that really imploded after quite a short space of time. Sex Pistols, Operation Ivy, Minor Threat. And you kind of leave that legacy perfectly intact, don't you? You mentioned it earlier on. Like when you end your career fairly early on, uh, there's no filler, there's no bad material because you got in there, you laid it all on the line and you fucked off. Uh, why did Minor Threat end when it did? From your point of view, what went down to, to kind of say, okay, this is it, we've ran the course See you later, guys. It's uh, over. Well, it was bands been to the. It, it had not really become that the band itself was more important than the members in in this interactive way. Like you just weren't going to be in a band with people that you weren't friends with. That's it's that was more important. The, the experience of working with other people uh, to make the music was more important than the product. And in Minor Threat, you know, again, this was not sacred to us. We were a very good band and people would come see us and we had managed to tour the country a couple of times, but we're still incredibly small potatoes. And we just got in, you know, we just had constant arguments um, and friction between the members over absolutely nothing important. And at the end of it, it was really uh, that Ian had kind of lost interest in uh, arguing 
with us. And left to our own devices, we started writing music um, that we thought was going to be sort of the next step of Minor Threat. And Ian really wasn't interested in singing over that music. And in retrospect, the reason why is that it wasn't good. And so you've got Ian, who is in a band that he wants to be in more than anything. The arguments are killing him. But you know what? It might be worth it if we're going to make more music. And then the music's bad. And so he did sort of a the Quaker version. He just wasn't like we ever had a meeting and said we're going to break up. He just sort of didn't come to practice anymore. And we'd sit and practice in, in Discord House. I mean, you know, Ian lives there. Jeff lives there. And eventually, Lyle and I talked to ourselves into the fact that we didn't need no Ian Mackay because I know Glenn Danzig. And we're just going to form, <laughs> fuck this, we're quitting Minor Threat and we're going to form a super group with Glenn Danzig and Chuck Biscuits and uh, who's going to play bass? Graham from Negative Approach. That was actually what we did. And uh, needless to say, that didn't really work out. <laughs> that was the embryonic version of what would become Sam Hain, right? Correct. Exactly. That was that was our out. It's like, okay, well, uh, we'll show you. <laughs> and we we didn't show him. <laughs> <laughs> was was Glenn already out of the Misfits at this point as well? Was he sort of looking yeah. for something to do next too? Yeah, I mean, that, my recollection on this is fuzzy, but we were friendly, and uh, yeah, and he was. That's exactly. I think we. If I don't know if the Misfits had played their final show of that era of the band but yes he was going to do his own thing and so we thought well hey this will be great you know we'll come and we'll come and be the band but i guess from what i've learned and heard about glenn is he's a very hands-on this is my project this is my vision kind of a guy is that why for yourself and lyle it didn't work out with sam hay were you coming from different musical avenues and it didn't quite gel it didn't quite work well uh my leaving was also kind of quaker in that i just really wasn't like i noticed that lyle had gone to new york to practice without me right (laughs) it's like oh oh well i guess i'm not in anymore but you know again this is not life or death to us i mean i'm like trying to get my parents to not force me to go to college (laughs) and that's more important to me and my job as a motorcycle courier where i don't have to pay taxes (laughs) is more exciting than what's happening with glenn danzig but the big answer to that is that glenn danzig does not need anybody he does not need the two guys from minor threat these two dorky kids from minor threat you know he needs people like oh i don't know uh, Erie Vaughn, he needs like monster people. Yeah, and he's got the vision on his own, and he doesn't. He he is a. I think Glenn is a genius, and despite what anybody uh, will tell you, I think he's a very nice dude, and he's very smart. And it just was like it was unnecessary to have us in, involved, and that's kind of why things ran out that way, and that's why we know who Glenn Danzig is. Yeah, I think he's a very misunderstood guy. I've spoke to a couple of people that have worked closely with him over many years, Joey Castillo, Tommy Victor, and they all say the mm-hmm. same thing. They just say, you know, he's he has that old school gang mentality where you're either in the gang or you're not, and he doesn't yep. really care too much for the outside world, but he's like, if you're in that inner circle, he's like the best dude ever. Yeah, agreed. He's a sweetheart, and um, and he's funny, too, <laughs> which is yeah, and it's part, hard for people to get, but he is. So it's uh, 
Yeah, I mean, artists are fucking weird. They really are. I mean, think about it. You know, <laughs> I would have to say that a significant portion of the early punk scene, um, I would say a significant portion of the audience was actually mentally ill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not kidding. You know, just undiagnosed or, you know, you know, walking up to, walking up to the DOA concert on lithium and fucking, you know, I, I, I mean, it was weird. And, and, and a tiny little subculture, too, which makes it even crazier. Well, it was a real underground subculture in its initial stages, wasn't it? And it did attract, as you yeah. say, the, the lost souls, people who were looking for yeah. a place to belong and an identity. And a lot of them, I guess, were from broken homes and impoverished backgrounds. And as you say, mentally unstable. Um, was there a lot of drugs flying around as well? And was the, just to kind of touch on the straight edge thing before we move forward, was that a, st yeah. was that a stance against you guys not wanting to go down the same road as perhaps the generation before you and become a rock and roll casualty? Or was it more literally just the circumstance was you were young and you wanted to put on shows that other young people could come to? And so by necessity, you were just like, well, let's do shows without booze. And then it was, you know, spawned from that. How did the whole straight edge thing begin and evolve well that was it, it was the latter of what you just said i mean it, it you know again in retrospect you know people think it, the impression of what a straight edge movement was was had absolutely nothing to do with minor threat i mean i didn't drink because i was 15 and i had a good relationship with my parents so if i was left alone in the house i wouldn't break into the liquor cap like i just didn't I didn't even think about it. drinking just wasn't something I did. And it was kind of, it was more coincidental, I think, than anything else. I mean, the DC punk scene, um, there really weren't a lot of drugs and a lot of drunks, but the ones that were, that were the people who were like that were still absolutely within the inner circle and still our friends. It was, a, it was not, a, it was never a, a judgment call or intended to be some sort of, you know, all-encompassing mission statement. I mean, Straight Edge was just one of our songs. And Ian was singing about the fact that he's not a fuck-up and he can think straight and he's excited about that. I mean, <laughs> he's not telling you to do it. It's what he's, it's he's sharing his personal experience. And so it's, uh, there really weren't, you know, I mean, uh, it, it it's funny to think about it now, but again, it was just not that big a deal. It was like, he's most of my friends didn't drink. Some of them did. Really, the only it would only thing would come into play ever would be like maybe I drive somebody home who obviously shouldn't be going home on their own. That's it. When did you start? You know, experimenting with alcohol. Did that come later the on? Minute, the minute I joined a heavy metal band on a major label, <laughs> Junkyard. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess if you want to fit in with that whole sunset strip. So what, what year do you move to LA? What year do you get out of Washington and move West? I, I made a false start and I moved. Uh, I had a false start in like the end of 86 and I went there for like six months and then came back. But I installed myself permanently by 1988. And um, I, I'm actually kind of exaggerating with a heavy metal band. I, I had kind of, uh, I discovered marijuana. You, you dabbled a bit before then. Well, if you listen to the third Dagnasty album, you can hear the day that I started to smoke pot. <laughs> um, it's right there for you right now, and you can go... Uh, Which one's go, the third one? Wig Out? No, Field Day. Right. Field Day, which uh, I don't even think it's on Spotify. I think you can find it on a, you can find it on a YouTube version of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I had become a little more... Uh, 
cosmically conscious. And of course, by then I'm also, I'm 23, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a child anymore and I'm living, you know, kind of this vagabond Hollywood lifestyle. And, uh, so I just kind of got in, you know, I was just, again, I wasn't like, it wasn't like flipping a switch, like where's the blow? It was really more of just sort of a <laughs> progression of growing up and, and, you know, the type of, uh, the type of music I was playing and the, the scene that I was involved in locally in DC, my, my LA, I'm sorry, in LA, my LA friends were just a whole different group of people. I so, guess you went through what every young person goes through. You just did it a few years later on when you were arguably more suited to that experimentation. Most people I think do it when they are too young and their mind isn't fully matured and developed yet. And that's why you get a lot yeah. of these casualties, isn't it? You know, I, I mean, I think that's, that's a reasonable supposition. Um, uh, I think a lot of the casualties is, are, are due to the to fact that, uh, you know, alcoholism is a disease and, you know, drug addiction uh, is no joke. And, you know, there's a, it's a combination of things. But I would say, yes, there's, it's undoubtable uh, that if you uh, start getting interested in drugs and alcohol, if you do so uh, when, when your body is fully formed, at least, I think you have a better chance of, being, uh, of showing good judgment. Uh, and it's also a cultural thing too. It's, you know, it's different. If I had grown up in Europe, I think that I would not, uh, there's a good chance I would not be an alcoholic like I am now. It's you know? in, it's interesting. I, you you don't seem to meet as many people in England and the UK in general that have gone down the rehab road as, as Americans have. And that's, I know, a very broad, crass generalization, but it is an interesting yeah. culture. I guess because booze is you know, because the age is that much older in America, it's 21, it's more like this forbidden fruit, isn't it? That you're, you know, it's there in reach, but you're not allowed it. And I guess that kind of breeds this unhealthy relationship with it, right? I, I think that that is true to some degree. And also just the European model has been uh, that, I mean, we all understand when the pub's closing and, you know, the Millwall fans are, you know, coming out the front door. And yeah, they're too <laughs> fucking drunk. Okay, we get it. That's like everywhere in the world. Um, but I just think that alcohol culture in, if you'll excuse me, more civilized parts of the world, you have people who are growing up and understanding that you can have that the reason why you're having wine with this dish is because it makes the food taste better. Yeah. And when you're done eating, you don't finish the bottle of wine. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's just part of this grander experience, I think. And then I think that, I mean, I'm sure that the, I would not be surprised to find that the uh, the actual rates of you know clinical alcoholism uh, might be even higher in Europe than the U.S. But I think it's just the stigma and the approach is so much different that it doesn't really seem to have the same. Uh, I don't know, just socially not the same thing. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in the UK don't admit the problem. They're like, I'm fine. <laughs> You're like, you're yeah. drunk all the time. But they're like, no, that's fine. I can function. I guess we have a lot of functioning alcoholics over here in the UK. <laughs> yeah, and also I think the uh, I, I still think that going into rehab and recovery is still uh, I think thought of something as a weakness in societies that have been uh, around for thousands of years. You know, with that kind of history, there was no such thing as rehab, and you know, World War One, goddamn it, and it's just uh, you know, again, it's just the way societies are formed, and you know, the longevity of most of these European cultures. I think it's, it's all combined to the same 
to, to why it seems to be less of a problem, even if it is one. I think as well, Americans are just better at talking about their feelings. It's very much the British approach to bury them and, you know, not talk about them, not address them. That's the British way. Um, whereas I do think in America, you're a lot more in tune with therapy culture and things like this and, and getting those feelings out and doing the work like you do in AA and things like that. I think that a lot of British people would find that so cripplingly awkward and intimidating, which is a shame um, that people yeah. perhaps aren't more more open to that. Maybe we'll come back to that in a bit, if that's okay with you, Brian. But for now, I would love to hear about your introduction to the guys in Bad Religion. Where do these relationships begin? Was it when you did the Dagnasty record with Epitaph that you met Jay and Brett, or did you know those guys before then? Um, the, the, the first bad religion guy I knew was Greg Hetson. Right. Um, and I knew him from the circle jerks. And so when I moved to LA, uh, he and I hung out in the same crowds because we were kind of, you know, vintage, even then it was like sort of vintage punk rock big shots. So <laughs> we would go to the bar with punk rockers in it so we could impress them and meet ladies. You know, that's what you do. So Greg was your uh, running partner on the bar crawling sort of scene, was he in Los Angeles? You know, we never partnered, but we were so active that we ran into each other on the field of play right. often, <laughs> often, often. And we had a lot of mutual friends. So I knew Greg. I did not meet Brett until 1991, uh, which was when we were doing uh, Epitaph was signed Dagnasty to do a posthumous album or, you know, we, we had no intention of reforming, but it was just to make another record. And that's when I met. That's when I met Brett, and I believe I met Jay then, too, because Jay would have been working there, but I don't have a lasting memory of Jay. Um, but I kind of knew, he, again, Jay was another one of these kind of, like, in punk rock, especially if you if you were there for the class of 1980, everyone pretty much knows each other. Like, you would just, you know, even if you, like, even if you don't have any real relationship or somebody's phone number, you see somebody across the room, and you have the kind of, like, you know, have a thousand yard stare like yes hello brother you too are one of us you know yeah so i had i had i had i had known jay in that way um but in general the, the way the bad religion thing started um really simply was that uh i was really out of touch with the bad religion catalog and i had really very little idea of of what they were doing from 1988 to 1993 uh but by being friendly with people at Epitaph, I had gotten a pre-release cassette of Recipe for Hate. Uh, and I was absolutely gobsmacked by that record. And it was infectious and it was overwhelming. And it really became a, uh, I, I listened to that record constantly. In fact, it actually was stuck in the cassette deck of my car. It, it could not eject. So <laughs> I didn't, I had no choice if I wanted to listen to AM radio or Bad Religion. Those were the two, actually. Um, and I just really, uh, it got me curious about the catalog I had missed. But most importantly, it was just, I said, this is where I should be right now. I wish that if I had not fucked up Dagnasty, I could be a Bad Religion. I was literally saying that. And I really wanted, uh, I just started, whenever I saw Greg Hetson, I told him, if Brett ever leaves, please call me. And when I saw Brett, I said the same thing. And, um, you know, it's kind of like a, a buddy film, but it's true. Yeah, you're um, hedge, I was hedging your bets from both sides. Hedging my bets. <laughs> and and what, what do you know? Uh, when Brett decided to leave the band, Greg Hessen and Greg Graffin called me and said, would you like to come? And, you know, I mean, they said try out, but no one else tried out. So I'll, I'd like to think that they were choosing me. <laughs> 
well, <laughs> sight unseen. To, but, what, uh, to what extent is this series of events true, Brian? Because I gathered from the book, which I really enjoyed and just finished reading earlier today, that at this point in time, you're working on the front desk of this recording studio. You're obviously meeting loads of musicians who are coming and going from there. And this yeah. is the time when are you offered simultaneously a role in both REM and bad religion. And it's like that thing of you wait for a bus and then two come at once. Is that how it went down? And what made you lean more towards bad religion than REM? Because REM, such a huge, huge band, but I guess was the offer of being a full-time member in bad religion. What swung it? Uh, well, yes, it was like two buses coming at the same time. And I had, uh, I had been recruited by REM to be a, uh, you know, a, a live musician, an extra musician on stage, like so many bands do. So the role that, you know, and it was, I mean, I love R.E.M. And I, I, uh, Amazing great band. dudes. Yeah. And really great dudes. And, uh, you know, I was, I just couldn't believe my luck that I had managed to get like a real job. <laughs> I mean, it, it was also something that kind of, you know, it was just a, obviously it would be a huge thing, but, when the bad religion offer came a few weeks later, after I had accepted the REM offer, the difference was that I, uh, I know my strengths and I bet on having a long term relationship doing what I had been working on since I started playing guitar. I mean, or at least playing in bands because the first band was minor threat is refining being a punk rock guitar player. And, so bad religion was this opportunity. It was it was taking the long view, is what it was, and uh, and so I just I I chose I chose bad religion, and 26 years later, I am I'm incredibly happy with my choice. And it's just an amazing testament to the the strength and the talent and the just the story of this group. Like there's, there's so few bands from that time that have continued to put out music, to tour, to increasingly evolve, but yet remain the same and, you know, not lose fans along the way, but just grow and grow and grow and grow. It's one of a kind band, isn't it? It really is such a unique band in the pantheon of not just punk music, but but rock and roll as, as a broad genre. Like there's so few bands that can say they've stayed, you know, the course, quite like Bad Religion have. I, I, I'm a, yeah, I mean, it's certainly unique and I'm, you know, incredibly grateful. And I, I still feel somewhat like an outsider even 26 years ago because, you know, this is really Brett and Greg's band. And the reason why I, this band is still relevant is because they work really hard writing really good music. Yeah. And the band has never become a band that's the greatest hits band or, a, you know, a parody of itself. Uh, we have been consistently putting out quality music, you know, every couple of years, um, the whole time. And I think that that's, you know, that's a big contributing factor is just the, you know, the quality, uh, of work that Brett and Greg do. And also, um, the band's pretty good. I mean, you know, we can play and it's, we really, really give a shit, um, there's nothing I hate more is to go see a band, especially a band full of seniors like myself, where you where they look like they don't want to be there or they're just performing this role 
uh, it's just unacceptable to me. It's like uh, I, I'm so electrified every time I get on stage. And I, uh, I, I think it's incredibly important to, to be engaged and to be living that moment because, you know, what a privilege. This could all go away tomorrow. Hey, it's a pandemic. Maybe I'll never get to play again. I don't even know. But I will know that the last show I played, I smiled and I danced around and I had a great fucking time. And obviously, you know, there's not been a completely easy ride the entire time. When you joined the band, I know Greg Graffin has always been sober, but when you joined, where were you with your relationship with, with alcohol and substances? And were the other guys in the band going wild at that time as well? Was Hetson and were Jay Bentley cutting loose as well when you first joined? Where, what, what was the dynamic then? Um, well, I mean, I was still in the fun part. I was still in the manageable uh, manageable drunky drug fun guy when i joined the band and when i joined the band jay was sober uh jay was sober uh greg isn't greg isn't sober he just doesn't drink he's right. just a normal person you know <laughs> yeah. and uh and hetson drank and bobby also just didn't drink he just wasn't wasn't sober he just didn't drink um so it was initially just me and hetson and then uh Eventually, I think Jay dropped out of the program maybe a couple of years later, and uh, and he became my kind of my partner in crime of all of this stuff. And it turns out that we were really, you know, the reason why we have these amazing capacities and this is the, the we're alcoholics. I mean, we're just <laughs> we're the real thing. We're the kind that you have to, you know, you sit in a room with a bunch of people and bad coffee and try to get to the bottom of it. Um, and Jay turned himself in. Uh, I don't, I, it kills me that I don't know. I think it might've been uh, 14. He might be 14 years sober. Um, I would feel bad if it was actually 18 and I'm saying 14 because those years are very, very hard. Uh, and then I turned myself in eight years ago. So we, uh, we had a great run, but at the end, like all these things, it was just ugly. And it's a, uh, it's just no fun. It's no fun to be so, in, you know, you become completely withdrawn and really unable to enjoy anything. Uh, and it's hard on the family, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm glad we made it out of it. And hopefully I will continue to do so on a daily basis. But uh, it was fun until it wasn't fun. Let's put it that way. I was going to say, can you look back on it with a certain sense of fondness on the good times and be like, yeah, oh, yeah. we had a good time there? Oh yeah, every time a great time. Look, I have no, I have no regrets. Um, Amazing. I am fortunate, you know. I'm, now I'm cool, and I made it out of it, and um, I even got physically fit. I mean, that was the reward. It's like, okay, we're going to take your booze away, but at least you know you'll look good in a suit for the first fucking time in your life. And I was like, yeah, I'll take that. That's fine. Well, it catches but up no. with you, doesn't it? You you don't know till you hit a certain age, and I think I'm hitting that age right now. But you're like, oh, I've been slim my whole life. I can drink and not exercise, and as long as I watch what I eat, it's all good. But then that gut just starts, doesn't it? The old beer belly. Oh God! Well, and and for me, I mean, there is you know so much photographic evidence. I mean, a quick Google will take you through a range of 150 pounds up into the low 200s and then you know it's, you can see it happening it's almost like you could plot it on a graph um yeah it's just yeah i mean it, it is what it is like some people can get away with that stuff turns out i couldn't but i had a really great time 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's a couple of time periods I'd love to hone in on before I let you get off, mate, and enjoy the rest of your day. Um, one of them from reading the book just sounded like a magical time. You're living in Manhattan. You just joined the band. This is your first record with them, The Grey Race, Electric Ladyland Studios. You've got Rick from The Cars producing it. Uh, put me in that time frame. Was that a very happy, creative, fun time for you in your life? Oh, absolutely. It was, uh, it was awesome. And it's it definitely a highlight because you had so many elements going together. Um, the fact that we actually were living in Manhattan, and I had been going to New York uh, I, I mean, I grew up in D.C., so I had been going to New York as a visitor my entire life. Um, and you always it was just you'd get up there and you, there's just a, there's a unique energy to New York City. I mean, everybody says it because it's true. And to be actually part of it and to establish a relationship with the guy at the deli and to walk back and forth a couple of miles to the studio uh, in all kinds of weather. It was just it was it was the movies, you know, the New York experience that you that you always see from outside, but to actually live it was, was incredibly exciting. And of course, uh, working with Rick, who was a beautiful man um, and such a, such a great producer and musician. And uh, I was very fortunate that he and I became pretty good friends. And uh, I managed to work with him on projects after the Bad Religion record. So I, I really met a, a really kindred spirit there. Um, and it was a, uh, yeah, it was it was really mad. When I look back on it, I see sort of like tinsel and sparkles. Like I don't there. It was just a, a beautiful, uh, beautiful time. It sounds like just the perfect mix of everything. It sounds so great. Electric Ladyland as well, being in there, living the dream. Yeah, yeah for sure. It was uh, just and the history just oozes out of the walls. You know, it's <laughs> it's really uh, it's just amazing. Yeah, uh, incredible, incredibly. I'm incredibly lucky. What about that Pearl Jam tour? At that point in time, they're kind of going up against Ticketmaster, right? It's the Vitology yeah. tour. You're opening up. Was that the biggest shows 
you'd played personally and Bad Religion had played as a band at that point. And, and how was that tour for you guys? Well, actually, no, because Bad Religion had gone to a lot of trouble to go to Europe and especially, uh, you know, a lot of time in Germany um, and Spain and Italy. So we were pretty big in there and we played we would play festivals in Europe. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, we would play. Um, we would. I can't believe I'm totally blanking out, but uh, Ross Gilder you know and festivals exactly. like yeah 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 got yeah I was actually I was actually hunting for uh, for Donington when I was blanking out I was trying to find a UK equivalent of like a re- Reading Festival something like that exactly was, yeah yeah which we which we played so the answer was no we played bigger we played to much more people but uh, the idea of doing it as part of a tour uh, was really exciting because then you're a traveling party and all of the things I alluded to when we first started speaking about this sort of you know this this mobile army, uh, which is so exciting. And of course we all love Pearl Jam very much, uh, great band and great people. So this was going to be, uh, this was a great opportunity for us. And I had a wonderful time. It is just sad that we lost so many dates because of these, uh, what Pearl Jam were trying to do. And, you know, they were trying to do the right thing, uh, by their fans with this, with this, uh, working outside of Ticketmaster. But, in the end, it worked out that uh, you can't fight City Hall. I mean, that's really, you know, that's that's the answer. And unfortunately, we didn't get to do a lot of the stuff we wanted to do. Did you see that taking its toll on them as a band and on Eddie in particular? Did you see the weight that that cause cost them? I didn't because our interactions with them were, I mean, we everybody saw each other every day, but realistically they're this, they're an enormous headlining band. And so their suite of dressing rooms is in a different place. And sometimes Eddie would come and hang out on the bus with us uh, because he, he, him and Jeff uh, kind of had been friends with bad religion, even before Pearl Jam, you know, so there was a, every, there was a, a good friendship there, but we didn't really spend more than, you know, a half hour a day. So we didn't get to see what they were going through. You know, we, we saw them when they were at the venue or sound checking or getting ready to play. And those are always exciting times. I mean, that's when you put the worries aside when you've got an instrument in your hand is, is the best cleanser. Do you have, Brian, a favorite story from Warp Tour of just absolute rock and roll summer camp shenanigans that you <laughs> that you feel like sharing? God. I know there's probably a thousand of them, but is there you know, is and, there one that really springs to mind as Warp Tour gold? Uh, I think, um, you know, I, I really should develop a good answer to this because <laughs> you there get asked were all the time so, and you're like, Oh God. <laughs> well, I just, you know, well, this is actually a good one because you're saying specific to the, to the warp tour. And that's, uh, that was an arena that, that, uh, where I have to say that the performance in that situation did not take precedent over the experience of being on the tour. And there are a number of reasons why I think because it was a half hour a day because you were playing in the daytime. So you had this incredible open spans of, of nighttime that everybody had shared. And those of us who, you know, I mean, just imagine it's like you're done playing at three o'clock and you're in a traveling circus with good scotch and fireworks and all the bands I mean, are your friends, right? Everybody knows everybody. Everyone's your friend. Yeah. And you go, you know, you go visit it. I mean, it's like you're, it's just this like, you know, like a little neighborhood and you go, well, let's see what's going on on the Boston's bus. Hey. And then you go, you know, from place to place. I mean, I can't, the, it's, it's the usual, 
it's not decadence there. What it was was just just mischievous, right? Development. Just <laughs> child shit. We there was one time we got really into uh, airsoft guns, which are uh, basically like these pellet guns that work on CO two cartridges, and they hurt enough when you get shot with them that you do not want to get shot with them. Like they really hurt, but you don't have to go to the hospital. Like they would rarely break the skin. So we would get drunk and we would have these guns and we'd be riding mini bikes around like an empty arena shooting at each other with like girls on the back and like trying to ride with one hand with a gun and a beer. I mean, just this lunacy, uh, absolutely unacceptable behavior. And, you know, no one was ever severely injured. But when I think about it now, it's like you're a grown man on a, you know, a Honda 50 <laughs> with a with a toy gun, you know, and, and you're driving like in the middle of a hockey stadium <laughs> where all the seats are gone. And they're all they're trying to do is get the wood planks up so that the game can play the next day. And you're just the most obnoxious, inconsiderate fucking horrible behavior that i would never ever approve of now but at the time you know who had the unfortunate task of trying to keep you in line was that kevin or was that his team like who who was landed with that impossible task well here's the other problem um we're real good with kevin and also the people that we our crew the guys we hang with we're all made guys so there was no one's disciplining bad religion pennywise and no effect yeah 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 the people who get disciplined are like the baby bands. Like that's, you can't, you know, hey, I mean, you know, the, the bands that you, you know, now you probably don't even remember who they were, but whatever the up and coming band or the ones that were put on there because they the label wanted them to be on the Warp Tour, those guys are like, you have to be in bed at 10. And meanwhile, we're, you know, we're setting fires and stealing boats on a lake, you know, naked. And, and no one's going to stop us. I mean, there's, you know, there was sort of an unreasonable expectation that the only thing you really had to worry about, the only wild card usually was Fletcher. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And Fletcher, who's famous for being a wild card, also has an incredible survival rate. And it's because he is the master of pushing it to the very, very, very edge. But then things succeed without any real lasting damage, except for maybe to him physically. So. Uh, I need I need to get him on the podcast soon. I've been chatting about it for a while because I just I need, oh, you have, have to. I need to hear from the elephant's mouth that story with him and the elephant. I've heard everybody else tell me about it. I just have need they, to hear his version. Have you, do you have they told you the punchline of when the when when he was actually gored? What he said? No. Okay. It was it was so funny. I, I mean, it might have been had. Get, you have to kind of know Fletcher because he's just unbreakable. <laughs> but so he's gored by the elephant, and his response was, "That hurt." <laughs> That's it. That hurt. I mean, that was like the, the only so time I've ever fact. heard him say anything. Any, any, any. Uh, <laughs> like admitting defeat. <laughs> yeah, like of any kind. That hurt. And of course, and that was actually word by word of mouth because I didn't go to the zoo with them. I, I saw what was happening and I stayed back. I stayed back and probably stayed back to do coke with Fat Mike or something. I, I didn't I didn't actually go. I didn't have the scene of the crime. I just have I just saw the video evidence while it was still hot. Are you still good friends with Mike to friendships like that? You know, because obviously when yeah. when you then become sober, but then certain other people still aren't and, you know, perhaps aren't going to be. Is that difficult to adapt? Does the friendship have no. to adapt, or are you close enough that you know it's still the same old bro? No, the qual the quality of the friendship 
uh, is paramount. And you'll find like now that I've been sober for so long, there are a lot of people that I don't really talk to anymore who uh, were, you know, part of this kind of wild party. But there are tons of people like Mike and a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are it's sort of that, uh, again, the made man aspect of it. And also that, you know, you war veterans are always they always know who the other one is. Yeah. And the shared experience, even if they weren't on the same field of battle, is still very, very powerful. And so that transcends whether or not anybody drinks or not. Like, nobody really cares. Uh, I mean, the difference for me is, like, when I tour with NoFX, um, I just don't go out to the bar afterwards. I go and do what I normally do, which is, you know, hang out in my bus full of sober people and make fun of people on TV and eat candy. I mean, it's... That's, that's the sober version, but it has nothing to do with our friendship or, and the interactions that we have. And that's, again, a testament to punk rock, really. Like, I think everybody that is in it for as long as people like yourself have been in it, that's a sign of a real lifer, isn't it? Because I think some people yeah. with, with music will join a band because they want to get rich, famous, they want to sleep with girls, whatever. And it's the people who stay the course and are still in it. that. I've, and the music itself, like I've been listening to so much Dag Nasty, Minor Threat, Bad Religion in the lead up to this chat. And it's been so positive on my frame of mind because I've been going through a bit of it as we all have been you know extreme highs and lows throughout this lockdown period and that music some of it nearly 40 years old still has this power to uplift and inspire and encourage and strengthen and I mean punk rock's just such a special and important thing isn't it for those who know and are in it it's I mean would you say that's the thing that's given you your life and everything that you have in your life that's good Absolutely. Um, you know, punk rock is protest music, but the other thing to remember is that it's never been the punk rock model to try to monetize it. This has never been a career goal. And I think the best music was created by people who were doing it because they had to, not because they thought that it would be a good idea or a way to achieve, you know, success down the road. And it's just kind of, and, you know, and a central point of a focal point of the music and the genre itself is it's been a you know it's it's not uh it's not really a product um it's expression and i think that that's why some of it is so great and why you can still get these this kind of emotional response that you just don't get from led zeppelin i'm sorry yeah i hear you I heard you on another podcast talking about Greta Van Fleet <laughs> and how, how fucking awful you thought they were. I was pissing myself because it's true. Like bands like that, they're just, oh, I'm going to be a carbon copy Led Zeppelin and, and that's what I'm going to do. And that just reeks of insincerity to me. Um, one thing I also wanted to ask you about, Brian, the importance of a sense of humor must be paramount because, you know, when you look at Minor Threat and Bad Religion, these are bands which are perceived to be very serious and, you know, yeah. r- right on. But from hearing you in interviews, from chatting to you today, and, and from really just the longevity of Bad Religion and everything that you guys have been through after reading the book and going on that journey with you, how important is a sense of humor to the keeping up of happiness and sanity and success and longevity and friendships and all these things is, is a sense of humor right there at the core as one of the most important things to have. I, I think so. And I can't think of a band that I am very friendly with that has achieved real success where the whole point is not where they're not funny, where they're not the whole interaction of the people and the people they travel with is constant humor. Um, it's, it's gotta be part of it. I think that it's, 
being funny and also not taking yourself seriously and being really, I think, the gratitude that, you know, sincere people really feel when this becomes something you look, all of a sudden you look around and, oh my God, I'm in my mid fifties and this is what I do as I play guitar and I make people happy. I mean, that's, uh, it's all, it's all together. How can, how can that not bring a smile to your face? You know, you gotta be the kind of person who likes to laugh and who has a, you know, has a good sense of humor, I think, to be successful in this. Um, Cause God, just being dour and, and imagine all the, all the things that come at you when you're out there, uh, you know, if you let yourself get down by it, you're just, you're never going to, you're never going to make it out of your basement. Brian, I've had such a nice time chatting to you, mate. I really appreciate you Thanks, taking man. the time out. It's been lovely. My pleasure. My final question for you is we've, we've now got the bad religion book. It's out. It's great. What about minor threat? Is there going to be a minor threat book? Is that something you guys as a group have spoken about? Is it something you'd like to do? Is it anywhere near being developed? If so, what, what's the situation with Minor Threat and perhaps a, uh, a document of that band's story as well? Uh, there will be a document, a book, a Minor Threat book. However, uh, it is going, at this stage in the game, uh, it is going to be uh, certainly unconventional. We have had discussions about it. We've actually had meetings about it. And we basically our guidelines are that we don't want to make a book uh, that is the story of Minor Threat and Dave Grohl saying how great we are and, you know, uh, various other luminaries describing uh, the impact of Minor Threat on their lives and all of this sort of thing, this traditional oral history or traditional music book. Um, what we are trying to do is find something something different and what we've done to that end is uh, it's pretty an interesting it pretty of course this is you know comes from Ian because he's again a genius is that this book is going to be lots and lots of uh, ephemera and photographs of things that uh, Ian and Jeff have kept they've kept every single thing that you could keep that would be related to minor threat from a from a sandwich wrapper in Utah when you you know uh <laughs> to uh, obviously to the usuals of like the handwritten lyrics and uh, the artwork and, you know, just, I mean, it's, it's insanely uh, far reaching the archive of minor threat stuff they have that would be very interesting to see. And the text is going to come from, we sat down and had a series of interviews where we just sat in a room with a recorder on just the four of us and just talked. I mean, I'm, I'm just, there, what you're, we recorded the dynamic that you get from being in a band, and it took us about ten minutes of talking before we. It was time travel, and we were instantly in, in our teenagers again. And the exact same way we talked to each other was the same. And the nicknames came back, and the laughter, and all of this. You know, we're trying to retell a story, and everyone has four different versions of it. And so you hear us, I mean, the, the, the amount of uh, information is just so great that needs to be culled through, but that's the kind of book we're trying to do is have this, uh, have this sort of the conversation with us as, as old dudes, uh, you know, they'll have to obviously edit that down to something that makes some sort of sense and, uh, and lots of really amazing stuff to look at, hopefully, uh, you know, great photographs. Um, but really, you know, I would, I, I think that that's a very, I think it will be a very effective legacy for the group. I mean, I'm sure that the, the rock book can still be written by somebody else, but for something that we're going to do ourselves, I think it should be, uh, 
you know, in the spirit of minor threat, something, something kind of out of the box and, uh, and real attention to detail. Amazing. So it's a hundred percent on the cards and those wheels are very much already in motion. They're, uh, the wheels are in motion. It's just this is a slow, slow train. <laughs> uh, and the beauty of it is, is that you know, with minor threat, the band doesn't exist, so there's really no hurry. There's no deadline here. Yeah. You know, and so it's gonna it's gonna happen when it happens, but uh, you know, it's still uh, you know, it's still forming. But yeah, no, it'll happen. It'll happen. You know, within <laughs> within our lifetimes. Have Have you read the Beastie Boys book? Have you managed to check that out? You know what? It's in my shelf next to the Elton John book. I haven't read either of them yet. I'm it, sorry. It's down a very similar line to what you're describing. It's a series of memorabilia and photos and visual snippets and kind of interview segments. And I definitely check it out for some obviously not stealing, but inspiration. And they very much go down that line of like a punk rock scrapbook. Because that's obviously the, uh, you know, the background that they're from originally as well yeah. was hardcore punk and stuff. And it works so effectively if you have those visual assets, which it sounds like, um, you know, the minor threat camp have in spades then you're yeah. all set yeah yeah i think I, I yeah i i would i think that if it's the beastie boys it was probably uh i mean they're certainly a lot more colorful and had a, a, certainly a lot more impact on the world than minor threat did but uh you know we'll do the best we can i'll check that but now that you mention it i mean that book is upstairs in my house right now i'll check it out tonight thanks Look, for reminding me matt no worries final question mate is would you ever do any live shows as minor threat ever again is that something that interests any of you or do you like to leave it in the past in a perfect time capsule where it is yeah um we'll never play a show at all it's it's uh there there are many many reasons but i think the best one is is that minor threat was truly uh, uh of its time and i would like to leave it the legacy intact and i don't really think that uh watching a bunch of older people cosplaying minor threat, even if we happen to have been in the band back in the day. Uh, I don't think that that's going to, uh, I don't think that would be any fun to be part of. I don't think it would be fun to watch. And I, I think that it would definitely do damage to, uh, to the real legacy of the band, which was this lightning in a bottle that existed for a short time with a short output. And that was it. And I think that's a, that's part of, our appeal i think that's part of why we are significant so i would never uh never ever want to hurt that for a paycheck no way i massively respect that i wish more people would do the same <laughs> uh sometimes Brian, it works yeah yeah i guess so and i think you know it can be nostalgic and nostalgia has a lot of weight and power and there's positive yep. there's positivity and joy there but sometimes as you say it's like let's just leave it in the past yeah. as, as perfect as it was then yeah. brian congratulations yeah. on everything mate congratulations on your sobriety on your success on your career on a great life and uh thank you again for taking the time to come on the show and hang out and have a chat man you're a great guy and i really enjoyed it i did too matt thank you so much for having me um you think up any more questions i think i'm going to be around the house for at least another year or so so feel free <laughs> to call back you have my number now. You can really, you don't even need to check with anyone. You know, just give me a call. Amazing. I'll, I'll, I'll be here. Well, I'll Great. tell you what I definitely will do is I'll be in touch when it's going up and I'll let you know and I'll get you a link and all of that. And uh, yeah, don't be a stranger, man. And I hope the next time we do do this, it's face to face, whether the mics are there or not. I hope that we can, you know, meet up and toast to life in the new world when shows are back and distancing is gone. And uh, 
yeah man we'll we'll just have to see what happens won't we but um yeah all the best with everything and thanks again for having a chat right, mate man. cheers brian all right that was awesome talk to you, i'm gonna talk to you soon don't worry this is all gonna this is gonna go away like <laughs> will resume my friend <laughs> take care mate catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.